0: Welcome to the first episode of The Bulletin Podcast for the Willy Brandt School of Public Policy at the University of Erfurt. I'm your host, Maria Bracken, and I'm excited to introduce the podcast today. My goal is to interview the fascinating students and researchers in the Brandt School, and to hear experiences and voices from all over the world. It is my pleasure to introduce our very first guest, Dr. Patrick Mello. Welcome to the show.
1: Hello, welcome.
0: Dr. Mello is the Interim Professor for Public Policy at the Brandt School. He's currently covering for the Franz Hanuel Professorship for Public Policy. He's also a Research and Teaching Associate and the Chair of European and Global Governance at the Bavarian School of Public Policy at the Technical University of Munich. He received his PhD in Political Science from Humboldt University, Berlin, and completed a postdoc position at the Technical University of Dresden from 2012 to 2016. Dr. Mello's research focuses on foreign policy analysis and international security, with an emphasis on the domestic sources of foreign policy and democratic conflict behavior. His work has appeared in the European Journal of International Relations, the Journal of International Relations and Development, Security and Peace, West European Politics, and many others. Welcome to the show again. I'm very glad to have you here. Thank you for joining us on this, our very first podcast episode.
1: Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> um, to begin, I'd like to ask you a bit about your earlier life experiences. We've heard a bit about your academic background. But were you interested in public policy even from a young age?
1: Um, I must say my, my own emphasis is really on international security. So um, I came to the uh, Brandt School as the interim uh, professor for public policy. Um, and my own area is rather international relations Mm -hmm. and international security Mm -hmm. um so uh, my interest in that area um, started probably more or less with 9 11 i would say so um i think at the time uh, i was i was not studying but uh, i actually was in uh, in new york uh, in 2001 and uh, this in hindsight i can say that this was really an experience that shaped uh, my, my outlook. Um, and after that I, I decided to, uh, sometime later, decided to uh, study politics, uh, political science, um, and uh, this then eventually became a study of international relations and international security uh, until uh, where I am now, right?
0: So how did, your, how did your personal behavior change then after 9-11? Did you find yourself following the news more or doing your a little bit of your own research?
1: Right, so I guess this came, uh, in terms of research, this came really later. During the time, of of course, I was following uh, the news and, and developments, global developments, uh, security developments, uh, and then much later I really decided to study this uh, from a political science perspective.
0: Right, and what were the first steps you took towards towards following that
1: goal? Um, I uh, At the time I was studying at the University of Washington in Seattle, and I took a class in international security. Uh, which at the time was really uh, not part of my major program but was an additional course that I took out of interest. Um, and in this class on international security, which was with uh, Beth Keer, who was at the University of Washington, um, we were really introduced to topics like the democratic peace, democratic war, and uh, other issues. Uh, stuff that I'm also now teaching uh, uh, in, in my class on democracy and international security. Uh, and this really sparked my interest uh, in these kinds of topics.
0: That sounds like a real turning point in terms of your of your interest.
1: I think so. So uh, this, this was my master's and uh, um, which then later became also uh, an area that I uh, emphasized in my PhD. Followed this up and uh, turned it into a PhD proposal, uh, which was gladly accepted in Berlin, uh, and And this was the starting point, then basically, for my academic research.
0: Out of curiosity, as, a, as an American myself, how did you find the experience of studying in Washington, as opposed to your, uh, at the time, home university of, uh, it was a joint degree, I think, in European studies, University of Bath and Humboldt. Yes.
1: Uh, yes. I mean, strangely, it was a, it's a master's in, in European studies, and I studied mm-hmm. this at the University of Washington, Seattle. <laughs> Seems like
0: you made a mistake there uh, somehow. <laughs> yeah. I
1: mean, I don't know how they ended up having a – they have this European Center of Excellence there on the West Coast, mm-hmm. uh, although obviously it would be more uh, appropriate to maybe to study Pacific relations. But uh, for some reason, they have this European Center there, um, and this was the reason why I came there. But uh, when I was there, uh, my, my own focus was really on international security issues.
0: You have a slight area of specialty, and I'd I'd like to ask this as well, because not only do you have a focus in in terms of international security, but you also uh, have contributed to methods as well, in particular, something called Fuzzy Set QCA, would you mind explaining that to the lay person? The uninitiated, Uh,
1: okay. This was something that I came across uh, gladly at an early stage uh, in 2008, about 2008, when I started my PhD. Um, So coming back from the University of Washington, I decided I wanted to study democracies and their behavior in international security, international relations. Um, and one thing I was missing was really this comparative perspective. So when people talk in international relations, when they talk about democracies, usually they make large assumptions about general tendencies that apply to all kinds of Western uh, consolidated democracies. But what we see and saw at the time was clearly that there are huge differences in terms of their constitutional structure, their political dynamics, um, parties in power, etc., etc. And these things are well known in comparative politics, but in international relations, people usually haven't paid much attention to that and treated democracies more or less as black boxes. So it was clear to me that I wanted to do a comparative approach and include as many democracies as I could feasibly can. Um, and then people alerted me to this method of qualitative comparative analysis.
0: That's a QCA. Call, That's QCA, yes. yes.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh uh, so this really the starting point was that people said okay this is a method where you can apply it to to uh, like 30 50 countries uh, that's really a good number uh, that you can do with QCA if you have larger numbers then you should probably do a statistical analysis if you just want to interested or just interested in one or two countries then you can do an in-depth case study um, but I at the time I had the feeling that I wanted to do uh, a comparison across 20 30 countries probably um, so QCA simply really like the right thing to do.
0: It fit exactly what you're hoping to accomplish. Although,
1: I mean, now from my standpoint, now it's clear that this should not be the first criterion to use QCA. (laughs) So, um, I mean, when I I teach QCA nowadays, I tell students also that uh, it doesn't matter how many cases you have, like you should have the right... Um, assumptions about your theory, uh, and this should guide your selection of your method. So, I mean, mm-hmm. if you're looking for a linear relationship, then the statistical approach might be right. Uh, if you want to uh, investigate causal mechanisms, you should do process tracing probably. Uh, and if you, m- you might have a set theoretic understanding of the world in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions, and then QCA is the right thing to do. Um, it doesn't really matter how many cases you have. You need a certain thre- you need to pass a certain, mm. th- a certain threshold of, ca- of of cases in order to use QCA properly, but you could use it with with nine or twelve cases uh, as well as with 150 cases.
0: And I'm thinking that unfortunately, fuzzy set probably does not refer to puppies and kittens as it, I was hoping.
1: It does not. No. So I was so uh, so the term uh, originates from Charles Reagan's book, Fuzzy Set Social Science, um, and. I think initially he he even said that he wanted to call the book Fuzzy Social Science, and then people said that this is really uh, the wrong way to go because uh, you have all kinds of implications there using this term fuzzy. Um, uh, Fuzzy sets allow for uh, a distinction beyond binary 0 and 1. So uh, it's basically about your measurement, about your coding of your variables. So instead of just having uh, instances uh, where something is present or something is absent, zeros and ones, uh, you can introduce uh, qualitative uh, differences between these states um, and also quantitative ones. So that's a nice thing about fuzzy sets. Uh, I don't want to go into the details too much. but uh, So you can introduce a qualitative criterion, which basically is whether a case scores above 0.5 or below 0.5. That's a qualitative anchor. Um, and then you can introduce quantitative differences uh, in that range. So above uh, 0.5, up to 1, those are quantitative differences. And below, there's a a qualitative threshold. And then again, you have quantitative differences in terms of uh, below 0.5, up or down to 0, basically.
0: You'd mentioned a bit earlier in our conversation that you had moved into being really interested in this area of international security. Can you talk a bit more about how your, your research area or approach has changed over time, maybe since you started pursuing that topic?
1: So uh, when I started pursuing it, uh, I came across QCA. I decided to use this method, uh, which I then also used for uh, my, uh, my second article, which became a chapter in my PhD dissertation and also used it in my my dissertation. So uh, this was still pretty much straightforward. Initially, I also wanted to do uh, process tracing and combine this with QCA. Uh, This was the idea uh, as a young PhD student. Uh, And then I realized that it's just not feasible to do all of that in in the same project. Um, So one thing that I always had on my mind was to go back and really do these in-depth case studies and that's something uh, that I did to some extent, though for, for the publication, I wouldn't call it process tracing. But uh, I did an in-depth study of uh, the UK and its role in the uh, 2011 uh, Libyan uh, episode, uh, the military intervention there, and also the 2013 uh, non-decision to, uh, to intervene in Syria. Um, And I compared these two cases uh, examining the uh, the process of parliamentary debates uh, over several months uh, based on on primary documents. Uh, This was more the kind of in-depth case study that I initially wanted to do for my dissertation but didn't because I focused on QCA.
0: You've mentioned Iraq, Libya and Syria. Are these the main conflict areas of focus for your research or are there others as well?
1: So, um, in my dissertation, I focused on Kosovo. This was the first case that I dealt with. Uh, and then Afghanistan 2001 and mm-hmm. onward. And uh, Iraq 2003 onward. And Iraq, so I, I had to make some decisions. And one decision was that I would focus only on the initial decision to participate in these conflicts, uh, a government's decisions. And uh, with Afghanistan and Iraq, obviously. Uh, There was much more happening afterwards (laughs) Um, that was also interesting, but I couldn't address this. And in later um, projects, publications, uh, I then tried to to do this exactly. So uh, one paper where I look at the uh, entire process uh, from 2003, the initial decision to intervene in Iraq, uh, and then uh, up until the end of the Iraq war, so to speak, and, and government's decisions to withdraw from Iraq. So some governments, like prominently the Spanish government uh, and the Zapatero, uh, decided to uh, withdraw the troops uh, when there was a government change, a new leader came to power, um, and uh, Zapatero basically decided to withdraw them immediately. Um, we have similar cases, but surprisingly also countries where we have similar lead- leadership changes, but nothing of the sort happened. Uh, so the question for this paper was also, do we have these patterns? Are there certain paths that we see across countries? Uh, Or is the Spanish case more as an idiosyncratic, unique case? Uh, And um, it doesn't really explain much across the board.
0: So, if I understand you correctly, it's to explain how and why countries do decide to participate or not participate in these particular conflicts, is that?
1: Yes, exactly. And also, to which extent they participate in this conflict. So uh, there's a large literature on on war involvement. um, And my issue with that, literature was that it also simplifies a lot. So people simply say whether a country participated in a war or not. uh, But most studies don't exactly look what kind of military participation happened. So people just simply say, okay, Germany didn't take part in this conflict, or Germany did take part in a certain military operation. Um, But my question was also, what did they actually deploy? Mm. So at which point in time did they decide to participate in the Iraq war? Was it before or after a certain UN decision? Did we have a UN resolution at the time? Um, was it uh, during the uh, the occupation phase or later? Um, did they decide to send a military hospital uh, or logis- merely logistical forces? Did they decide to participate in the combat operations? These kind of questions.
0: So yes or no is just not a sufficient <laughs> parameter to describe the complexity of the, of the participation. I think so.
1: I think the interest, I- <laughs> the interest lies really in the qualitative uh, exploration of that.
0: Earlier, I mentioned um, some of the places that your articles have been published, but I also know that you wrote a book as well. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? I believe it was called... Democratic participation in armed conflict, and it received a an award as well from the German Political Science Association.
1: Y- yes, it did. Uh, I'm thankful for that. Um, it um, so this is basically my my dissertation. Uh, the uh, a revision of my dissertation. Uh, initially, I thought it would be a swift thing to <laughs> just turn the dissertation into a book. Uh, this then turned into a year long project uh, to to rewrite everything basically, um, uh, and. This is uh, the book on on Kosovo, Afghanistan and Iraq, Um, right, Uh, basically what I I talked about before.
0: What sort of collaborations, obviously working as an academic, you'll have been in cahoots with a number of different people, can you talk about a collaboration that's been really successful for you, really fruitful in terms of your research?
1: Uh, there are many. Uh, hmm. I think uh, one thing I just noticed is that, I mean, when I started out, uh, and that's probably the usual way as a PhD student, you work on your own. So you have your own project and, and then slowly realize uh, actually other people are also interested in similar questions, um, uh, but it takes some time until you then also try to approach these people or see them on, at conferences. Um, and that would also be a recommendation that I would have for for any uh, aspiring researcher to uh, start to make these contacts as early as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just worthwhile. Uh, most people are friendly, most people are approachable uh, and it can't hurt to to tell them that you're actually working on the same question or similar issues. Mm-hmm. you read their publications. Um, you would like to know more about certain things. Um, and you don't know in academia, the interesting thing is that, there's a, this long-term perspective. So you meet people at a conference mm. and then three years later, <laughs> uh, you see them again and uh, in a hallway and uh, then you realize that you're actually working on the same issue right now mm. and you you start a new collaboration. Um, so that's that's beautiful about academia. I don't think it's mm. in the private sector, it's probably much more dynamic and short-term. Well,
0: that's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about it that way before. Yeah, And I, d- I know that you were excited. I actually spoke to you a little bit earlier today that you have a, a special issue that's just come out. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about that? Yes,
1: so this actually came out yesterday or (laughs) uh, the day before. Uh, So we have a special issue of the British Journal of Politics and International Relations uh, co-edited with uh, Dirk Peters of the Peace Research uh, uh, Foundation in uh, Frankfurt, uh, the Peace Research Institute in Frankfurt. Um, And this is the result of a uh, broader collaborative uh, project I think we have uh, we have 11 different authors, uh, 11 different articles, or uh, uh, articles on also 11 uh, different parliamentary bodies. Um, so I'm excited that it's out now. It's pu- been published now for as the online first version and the published version. The print version will come out in February, I believe. Um, right. And the essential questions here were: uh, What kind of effects do parliaments have on security policy? Um, to which extent do parliaments contribute to the politicization of security policy? Uh, And do we see other forms of influence uh, besides formal uh, influence? So much of the literature has focused on uh, formal influence so far, what kind of rights do parliaments have and parliamentarians, Uh, but we know, especially when we look at the European parliament and other parliaments, for instance, also in Britain, uh, that some some legislative bodies don't have strong formal rights but nevertheless they exercise a certain influence on security policy and that's what these contributions are interested in
0: and personally what research are you are you currently pursuing or what's in the pipeline for you
1: um yeah i'm i mean i guess this this parliamentary project is now done uh, more or less (laughs) which is good Uh, uh um i mean we, s- we just had to correct the proofs today for the print version uh i think there will probably be a few um continuations of this project uh some questions that have been left uh, open uh, some things that we could pursue in the future um Besides that, I, I'm, I'm involved in a project, something totally unrelated to that, uh, on uh, UN sub-organizations and agency slack in these organizations. Um, so that's with Eugenio Consisao held at the uh, Hochschule für Politik in Munich. Um, it's a project and I'm involved in the methodological the research design, basically. And we will also use QCA for this and process tracing, uh, trying to compare UN sub-organizations and the extent to which their organizational characteristics lead to agency slack. And agency slack is here understood as uh, these organizations overstepping their mandate. Um, It might be in in their organizational interest to extend their mandate or to interpret their mandate in a different way. And we try to find out to which extent the organizational characteristics influence this
0: dare i ask what a runaway agent is it sounds to me like james bond has gone rogue. yes
1: that's from the title <laughs> uh, uh, yes uh, so international bureaucracies as runaway agents uh, and and these runaway agents will be agents that uh, that overstep their mandate mm. um, and it's based on the principal agent approach
0: as a final open question in this sort of this component of our conversation what in your personal view do you think are our policy problems in your area that might have been overlooked or deserve some more scrutiny? What particularly should be worked on and pursued?
1: I think um, as a general observation, um, I mean there's lots of research on many d- interesting questions but what is missing slightly might be r- true comparative approaches uh, mm-hmm. so uh, I mean we have interesting articles uh, m- m- many interesting articles on terrorism in the United States for instance we just read this in a class on uh, democracy and international security yesterday um, but these are not true comparative approaches. So uh, what is lacking, uh, I mean, is the European perspective, is a global perspective. Um, and uh, we notice this in class all the time that uh, for many of the major readings, the mainstream readings, that get the most attention, the most citations. These are usually based on a fairly uh, small number of cases, countries uh, that, that uh, researchers explore. And um, I think it would be wonderful to extend these questions and apply them to other national contexts, other regional contexts.
0: You are currently teaching at the Brandt School. Um, I have a, a actually lengthy list here of, mm-hmm. of courses that you're involved with. Um, firstly, the introduction to public policy and the research and writing workshop, which accompanies it. Those are things that I, as a first year student, uh, am attending, as well as a specialization module, which is about international affairs, cooperation and development, and in particular, democracy and international security, which is your area of expertise. And you're also contributing to a project group that seems like an quite a few things going on for you how are uh, you finding yes, that yes
1: uh it, it's working wonderfully mm-hmm. um so uh it was a bit to get to get all of these things going uh, uh, last october um but the courses are doing well so um i'm glad i had the opportunity to participate in this uh, project group Um, Together with Richard Stupert, who I think uh, initiated the project group on on media and responses to complex humanitarian emergencies. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, This is exciting. These are second year students uh, who work on different questions regarding complex humanitarian emergencies um, uh, and basically three different uh, projects uh, and they write real project reports about it and we hopefully we will also get them um, published in some one form or or another.
0: And how fa- have you found the Brandt School so far? When did you start?
1: So I started last I October. Um, and before that, uh, I was here once before uh, mm-hmm. to teach a, a methods class. Um, so I knew the Brandt School before, it was mm-hmm. not uh, totally new territory for me mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, yeah, And this, this also made the transition quite easy.
0: What are your favorite aspects of, of teaching, especially an introductory class, for example?
1: Right. I mean, teaching this introductory class uh, in itself is uh, is new to me, Introduction to Public Policy. Um, and it's been a great opportunity to uh, work on these issues together with the students. Um, uh, some of the issues that are also new to me, uh, and I'm, I guess I'm bringing my own international security perspective to to these issues, uh, but the approaches can be applied to public policy as well as foreign security policy. Um, so we had great debates, I believe, in, in the class. Also, uh, because we have such a diverse group of students, uh, this mm-hmm. is really something that's unique about the Brand School. Uh, I don't think of anything like this uh, in, in the German context, definitely not, uh, uh, even internationally. I mean, usually uh, you have fairly homogeneous groups of students. Uh, but here, uh, we have so many different nationalities mm-hmm. and backgrounds, um, which means that teaching is challenging uh, because it's just hard. I mean, you cannot uh, get rid of your own background. And Mm. of course, uh, I can't uh, provide examples uh, from countries uh, or regions that I'm not familiar with. Mm. Uh, But I'm trying to, of course, listen uh, to uh, students and and hear about their experience and how uh, they might uh, think about uh, the questions that we deal with in class.
0: What's been most surprising to you? I mean, you mentioned the international context. I, I believe it's Fifty odd students from about thirty different countries in, right, in right. my year. So it's such a wide range. And what's what's been surprising to you about the international context?
1: I think uh, maybe I was expecting more difficulties uh, <laughs> in those terms. <laughs> uh, so no, I mean really glad uh, uh, it's working very uh, smoothly. Um, I mean people are. Uh, um, doing their uh, exercises and, and participating. I mean, great, great participation in classes. Uh, usually uh, this goes down after people have presented. Uh, uh, they, they don't show up that much anymore. That's not happening here. So um, I think people are quite dedicated uh, and they know what they want. They want to um, get this degree, they have certain goals where they want to go afterwards uh, and they're here with a purpose. Uh, I think that's that's very clear about the uh, Brand school students. What
0: I've noticed is, is quite interesting is that everyone has a, a clear goal, but also they're so different and people come from such different backgrounds that often we're sat next to someone who wants to do almost completely the opposite, <laughs> almost the completely opposite thing to us. And it's, right, it's fascinating. Right. It's really, but it, it must be a challenge for you, for example, as an academic advisor, to have people come to you with all different anticipations of what will come from the degree.
1: Right, I mean also this puts us, me uh, sometimes in a difficult position because uh, obviously I can't uh, advice on, on all kinds of issues. Mm. Uh, so I mean, if, if people say they want to go in the private sector or they want to work in a certain country, uh, want to work for the ministry, um, then there's not much that I can recommend to them mm. in, in practical terms. Uh, I can I can try to advise them on academic questions and uh, to make their uh, thesis and their uh, papers uh, valuable and worthwhile, but uh, yeah, for some issues are also, I mean, then there are limits uh, in, in terms of, of advising. Yeah.
0: Of in terms of the areas where you do have specialty, do you have any advice for current students just from your from your background in the academic setting?
1: Um, I think one thing is really to try to to network early uh, and um, so, for those who are interested in pursuing an academic career, uh, really try proactively to uh, I mean, do your readings, go beyond that, uh, find out what's out there, what has been published on an issue. Uh, think about your master thesis also maybe as, as a first contribution to academia, uh, not just as an exercise, but mm-hmm. this will be your first, uh, your first step uh, in that direction. And then try to contact those people who wrote and write, are writing on your subject. Uh, most people will be approachable, like I said before. Um, sometimes you might not get a reply, but uh, just be persistent and uh, make them know that uh, you're working on this issue and you have specific questions. Usually when you write to people uh, that you read, uh, people in the literature, but uh, you can contact them, of course, uh, and when you have a specific question, then usually you also get a reply. If you have a general question, then they might not take the time, I mean, how to answer that, uh, to, to find out how to answer that. Um, so I think that will be uh one recommendation. Um and then for those people who are trying to uh, to work outside of academia uh, which m- might be uh, the largest group um, I, I, I could imagine that it might be a bit challenging to find uh, internships in Germany, for instance, or to get connected uh, with uh, the, the right organizations and the right people. So there also will be about persistence and, and just trying to uh, establish these contexts, maybe also to make your supervisor and your mentor aware of what you want to do, where you want to go, and to highlight your own background and your qualifications. Mm. So I think many of the students bring things to the table that are valuable in the German context and the European context. um, But they are themselves maybe not aware of these strengths. So uh, you should not see certain diverse backgrounds as a a hindrance, but rather Mm -hmm. as an asset. Uh, And you can say, I mean, I'm an expert from this region. I know this region or i worked even uh, for particular organizations. And this is something that I can bring to the table when I work, uh, for instance, uh, at a research institute in Germany.
0: So not to be put off by your inexperience in the particular German context, but to use the background that you have is really a selling point for yourself.
1: I think so. Yeah.
0: And heaven forbid anyone should should think about pursuing a PhD. Do you have any advice for those folks?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, when I when I did my, uh, pursue or decided to pursue my PhD myself. Uh, this was also quite a hesitant thing. So I, I didn't, it took some time to admit to myself that I really wanted to do the PhD. So I did my masters and afterwards I worked uh, in, in university administration for for some time, uh, preparing my PhD proposal. Um, yeah, just use the time wisely. I mean, if you know you want to do this, uh, then, then go for it. And uh, uh, think about, yeah, like I said, your master thesis already is the first step in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will be, so if you have a master thesis, that can be something that allows you to connect with people uh, and, and then pursue that further. Um, so of course it helps if you have if you already written your master thesis on a topic that you then want to pursue in the ma- in the PhD program. Um, that's great because people can already mm. see that you you have a published record in yeah. a sense on this topic.
0: So long t- long term thinking about what what you're doing now and how can that that can affect then the future.
1: Right, right. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much. That's actually all the time we have for today. You're welcome. Uh, but I'm thrilled that you are our first guest on the show. It's wonderful to have you here.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And thank you. You can find out more about our show on the Bulletin blog page at school.de. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, you can contact us via the blog. Until next time, work hard and change the world.